Do you know somebody who just seems to be unreachable with the gospel? Maybe they seem to have it all together. Maybe they have a great job. Maybe it seems like they have everything they could possibly want in life. Maybe they have a a great marriage. It just seems like they're living a happy, happy life, a life of ease. And perhaps they're even a little bit arrogant in life. Perhaps they're even a little bit arrogant toward God, a little push-offish toward God. Do you know someone like this? They don't really feel like they need God. They don't see a need for God because life is good. What do they need God for? They view God as a crutch that people like you and me need for our lives, that we have to lean on, and, and there's no way that we could make it through life. They see us as just these needy people, and they don't need God in their life. And besides, they don't really want God getting in their, in their business anyway. There are people who it just seems like they're unreachable. Maybe you know a person that in your mind you thought they'll never get saved. Maybe they don't fit that description, but in your mind, they're unreachable. Well, in Daniel chapter 4, our text tonight, we read about such a person. He lives in Babylon at the same time as Daniel. He's the king of Babylon, and his name is Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar fits the profile of an unreachable. Well, by this point in the story, Daniel has been living as an exile in Babylon for, by my estimation, 30-plus years by this point. Remember, he was just a, a teenager when he was exiled out of Judah, carried off into Nebuchadnezzar's of Babylon and, and put into the assimilation and indoctrination program and, and then quickly he ascended to this, this, this governor of the province of Babylon, this ruler in Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. Well, because of Nebuchadnezzar's uh, knowledge of Daniel and the, his, that's uh, what I'm looking for, his uh, interaction with with Daniel and his friends, of course, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We, we saw already Nebuchadnezzar's interaction with them. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar knew quite a bit about their God. He had been introduced to God. He saw what God could do. He saw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego come out of a, a furnace, a fire, unscathed. But... It seems like it just, wow, for a moment, it had some impact. What real impact did it have in Nebuchadnezzar's life? It seems like Nebuchadnezzar may be unreachable, but here's what I want us to see tonight. God was working in Nebuchadnezzar's life. He was using Daniel in the process. He was using Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the process. And chapter 4 is a story about how God humbles the proud. How God works in that unreachable person who seems so arrogant, so proud, and so resistant to God. How God works in their life. And my prayer tonight is that for those of us who are living life in this Babylon today, here in our own exiles we're citizens of heaven, that, that we would see that we're not to give up hope for the people in our lives who seem unreachable. 
We're not to give up hope. We're to see that God can work in their lives. And, and here's the key, what I, what I hope that we'll take away from this tonight. I think Peter uh, very clearly expresses this in chapter 3 of verse 15 of 1 Peter. He says that we are to always be ready to give an answer to those who ask of us a reason for the hope that lies within us. And so tonight, here's our big idea. Here's our big idea. No one is beyond the reach of God. Nobody. Nobody is beyond the reach of God. Even the most unreachable, proud people in our world can be humbled and saved. Amen? Praise God for that. And it's a calling of every follower of Jesus as God's ambassadors to personify and to proclaim the truth. And so here's what we're going to see tonight. First, we're going to see in the first third of the chapter, the ask. And then we're going to see Daniel's answer. And then we're going to see the aftermath. The ask, the answer, and the aftermath. So number one, the ask. Here's the truth that's on the screen. Here's the truth that we're going to see from the first 18 verses here. Even the most unreachable people have moments when they are searching for answers. What does it tell us about Nebuchadnezzar in verse number four? It says that he was at ease in his house. He was flourishing in his palace. You see, to say that Nebuchadnezzar was living a life of of affluence is an understatement. Here's the most powerful guy in the world at that time. He's the king of a superpower. Here's a guy who had all the money, anything he wanted, all the power. Here was a man who had fame, unparalleled wealth. Here is a a powerful, wealthy man. Here's what I want you to recognize. Not everybody is unhappy, lonely, and empty. Not everybody. Now look, there are a lot of unhappy, lonely, empty people in our world, aren't there? But we have to recognize as Christians, I think sometimes we, we think those, that's, that's what, who everybody is. But no, there are people right now, especially in our community, life's great for them as far as they're concerned. They have all the toys. They have all the things they could ever want. They're, they're, they're happily enjoying life to the, to, for the most part. Everyone, every person I believe, has some bursts of happiness at times in their life. It's not to say that, that even the happiest of people, quote unquote, don't have those empty moments. We know that there's an emptiness that only Jesus can fill, right? But like Nebuchadnezzar, what I want us to see here is that there are, there are moments in even folks like Nebuchadnezzar who have everything together in life, they have moments, they have circumstances, there are events that happen in their life. Maybe it's on the personal level, maybe it's on a family level, or, or on the occupational level, or on the national level, or on the world level. There are, there are circumstances and events that for a moment stir them and get their attention and cause them to have questions that they, they need answers for. Maybe it's a diagnosis, right? I mean, you can, 
you can have all the wealth and wonder and power and all of that. You can, life can be going great and get a bad diagnosis. That happens all the time. Sometimes it's a disaster, a local disaster, a national disaster, right? I mean, we see what's going on in the Middle East right now, and it seems like there are people who, who are shaken to some degree by that, looking for some answers to some degree. You look in the national level, you look at what's going on in our nation, I think there are people who otherwise might consider themselves affluent and happy and, and having all they would want, and yet there's, there's something stirring within them. They're looking for some, some real answers in life. In this case, in this case, it wasn't a diagnosis or a disaster, it was a dream. Nebuchadnezzar had a, a, some visions about this holy one who came down out of heaven, verse 13, pronouncing that what sounded like judgment to Nebuchadnezzar. Here's the dream. We didn't take the time to read it, but, but you can look at verses, begins at about verse number 10 down to verse 17. The dream goes something like this, this vision of a flourishing tree and this flourishing tree fed and sheltered birds and, and animals. And, and all these birds and animals flocked to this, picture this large flourishing tree with all this fruit and all these birds and animals coming to it and, and eating from it and finding shelter in it. Well, he hears the angel in his vision command to chop the tree down, to cut the branches off, <laughs> cut the thing up take the leaves up and scatter the fruit and then take the stump and, and brand it with iron and bronze. And then the angel, on top of that, commands, announces that someone would live like a beast for seven periods of time and then be restored. Well, it might not sound like a nightmare to us, but it was the Nebuchadnezzar. The text tells us he's afraid. He's frightened. This was a nightmare to him. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar has already had a dream, and he knew that it meant something. Remember Daniel, go back to chapter 2, read it later, but, but you'll see that, that Daniel interpreted that dream, and, and that was, you know, this golden, this, the statue of, uh, with a head of gold, right? And that was uh, Nebuchadnezzar, right, the greatest kingdom. I mean, that, was a, that dream kind of really maybe puffed him up to some degree. Here's a dream about a, a tree getting chopped down. What in the world could this possibly mean? And so he wants answers. And even the most unreachable people have questions. Think about that. Even those people in your life that seem unreachable, they have questions too. Now, they might be too proud to ask, you know. But even those who are proud can reach a level of desperation that prompts them to search for real answers. Nebuchadnezzar called in his wise men, verses 6 and 7, he issues this decree, and, and all the wise men of Babylon are, or, were ordered to come before him, and he, he told them the dream. He's looking for an interpretation, and whether they took a stab at it or not, we don't know. We just know that they didn't have any answers. It says there in verse 7, they could not make its interpretation known. And and here's the reality. Apart from God's wisdom, man has to make up answers to life's greatest questions, right? Apart from God's wisdom, 
I mean, man can come up with some deep philosophical answers for different things and, and even put it under a, you know, the branding of sci- it's science, you know, under science. They can make it sound real, con- you know, convoluted, real complicated, real sophisticated. But at the end of the day, what does it really answer when it comes to some of the biggest mysteries of life? The world's wisdom comes up short, leaving many people still searching for answers. You know an unreachable person recognizes whatever the news is saying, whatever they can find on Twitter or on Google, it's going to come up short if it's not God's wisdom, if it's just the world's wisdom. Well, verse 8, enter Daniel. Here comes Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar trusted Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar, the king, knew Daniel. Daniel had a reputation as a man of wisdom. Nebuchadnezzar recognized, he says, that he had the spirit of the gods. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, in his heathen mind, trying to wrap his head around, he just knows that there's something special about this guy, and he has some spiritual insight nobody else has. In the times, in times of crisis, people often turn to someone they know has spiritual insight. Be that person. Be that person. You can't be that person if you don't have a good reputation with the person. They don't trust you. If they don't, if they don't see the spirit of God in you, they're probably not going to come looking for answers, but, but we should, in our hearts, strive to be that person. Ask God, help us to be that person for the people in our lives who live around us, be it in our homes or in our workplace or in our, our, as our neighbors. Let me be that person, Lord, that, that people come to when they have spiritual questions, when they have questions they don't know what the answers are. Help them to come to me. Help me to be that person in their life. Do the lost people in your life see God so at work in their life that when, they, when life hits the wall for them, life throws them a curveball, they know they can count on you. They know they can come to you for answers. Do they recognize that you are a person with some spiritual insight? This should encourage us to be prepared to explain our faith in an appropriate and productive way. It can also make us aware that God's Holy Spirit is working in and through us today just like the Spirit was working in Daniel. Amen? The, the people who don't know Christ, they can pick up on that. They can see that. They can recognize. They don't fully understand it. But they ought to be able to recognize the Spirit of God living and dwelling within us. And so, church, let's be developing continually a deeper relationship with God so that our inner spiritual quality shows outwardly to others, to them like, you know, a light in a dark world. Amen? Be that, be that, that person. So, so that's the ask. The ask. Now we see number two in verses 19 through 27, the answer. Here's the truth. It's on the screen. If you know the truth, tell the truth. 
to even the most unreachable. If you know the truth, tell it. Tell it. Well, upon hearing the dream, in verse number 19, look at verse 19, then Daniel, whose name is Belshazzar, was stunned for a moment. And his thoughts alarmed him. And the king said, Belshazzar, don't let the dream or its interpretation alarm you. Like Nebuchadnezzar picked up on the fact that Daniel was concerned. There was, there was some level of fear that showed up on Daniel's face. I don't think it's that he was perplexed. You know what I think it was? I think that Daniel immediately, the Spirit of God immediately gave him the interpretation of the dream. And it wasn't like the first dream he had in chapter 2. This one was judgment. This was bad news. And he was going to have to give the bad news. So what does Daniel do? Does he try to smooth it over? Does he try to make the kind of water down the message, you know, to try to make it a little easier for the king to swallow? Does he cower in fear because of what it may mean to him? Well, here's what I think. I think that we can learn a lot from Daniel's response about how we are to respond when the lost turn to us for answers, okay? How are we supposed to respond? We can learn from Daniel here. Here's how Daniel responds. First, give a courageous response. That's what he does. Talk about courage here. Daniel gives the interpretation. He says it like it is. He had a moment of fear, anxiety, right? Someone come to you and say, said to you, so tell me. Tell me about this Christianity thing. And you have that moment of, uh, have you ever felt that before, anybody? Like, they come to you for an answer, and for a moment, there's a flash of, oh, man, I don't want to mess this up. I don't, <laughs> that moment of fear. Do you ever get fear when you're about to talk to someone about Christ? I, I've, I've had that experience many times over. Well, Daniel he recognizes that he is standing in front of the king. In ancient times, these eastern monarchs, they exercised supreme authority. Nebuchadnezzar was the master of life and death for Daniel. You know what they used to do with prophets that gave messages that they didn't like? <laughs> yeah, Dave goes, yeah. They, they shut him up. They either locked them up or, I mean, they, they shut them up. You give me a message I don't want to hear, man. That's, you're done with you. Nebuchadnezzar had a violent temper. Read the first couple chapters. How many times he's like, hey, if you don't give me interpretation, I'm going to have you ripped from limb to limb. You know what I mean? Like, whoo, okay. I'm going to have you thrown into a fiery furnace. Stoke that thing seven times hotter. I mean, this is the guy that he, he's got to, Respond to, and he does so with courage. Listen, God's people, we are called to proclaim the word of God and leave the consequences to God. We're to proclaim what God has said. This is what what Daniel does. Uh, Other examples, we find this in the scripture. Remember Nathan going to to David, remember? 
David had sinned with Bathsheba, and God sends Nathan. And Nathan tells him the story, and David's like, yeah, that guy needs to pay for that. And Nathan's like, you're the guy. David was the king. Nathan's a prophet. And he had the courage to say, David, you're the man. Elijah to Ahab and Jezebel, right? Jezebel and Ahab, they're like, you're ruining Israel. And he's like, I'm not ruining Israel, you are. Woo! Courage. John the Baptist to King Herod, right? It's not lawful for you to marry your, your wife's or your brother's wife. Woo! Courage. We must have the courage to say things that God has called us to say regardless of the consequences. It might mean that we lose a friend. It might mean that we lose some status, maybe even a job, a business deal, some clout. I don't know. Worst case, like John, he lost his life, got his head cut off. And like what he said, had his head cut off. Paul puts it this way in Galatians 1, obviously I'm not trying to win the approval of people, but of God. Oh, this is, what, this is who we need to be in 2023, right here. People who are not trying to win the approval of anybody out there in the community, just living to please God and who are going to proclaim his word. God help us to be bold, courageous witnesses of Jesus Christ. Help us to speak the word without fear and without Fear of consequences. But note this. A courageous response does not mean, mark it down, it does not mean a disrespectful response. There's a difference. Courage doesn't mean turning into Westboro Baptist. You know who they are, right? If you don't, don't even bother Googling it. It doesn't, it doesn't mean turning into a jerk. Is that what it means? Daniel wasn't a jerk to King Nebuchadnezzar. No, he's actually respectful. And so give a courageous response, yes, but also, second, give a respectful response. When you are asked, the answer is to be courageous, and the answer is to be respectful. It seems evident by how Daniel addresses the king here that he genuinely likes and respects Nebuchadnezzar. Remember, this is the guy who hauled him off from his home in Judea, who was responsible for slaughtering thousands of his countrymen. Now Daniel has lived under his thumb for some 30 years. I think, here's what I think happened. I think that Daniel came to terms a long time ago, before this, that God had used King Nebuchadnezzar to judge his people. And Daniel wasn't going to live the rest of his life in Babylon bitter. He was just going to participate in God's plan. And he was going to respect the king. And he was going to do his job. And he was going to do it well. Man, there's some learning for us right there, isn't it? Living in America in 2023, man. Just live respectfully. Honor the king, right? I mean, we can, we can have courage, but we're to be respectful. Here's what Daniel says in verse 19. He says, my Lord, may the dream apply to those who hate you and its interpretation to your enemies. Daniel's saying, Daniel is 
He's being compassionate. He's being courteous. He's, he's being respectful here. And this is what we're called to be when we are called to give an answer. We're called to be courteous. We're called to be compassionate. Here's what Peter writes. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. Sometimes we forget that part of the verse. Gentleness and respect. Colossians 4.6, Paul writes, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, yes, but gracious so that the person may know how you should so that you may know how you should answer each person. So gracious, gracious. Daniel's words to the king are meant for his good and his prosperity. Paul says in Ephesians 5.15, excuse me, that our response is that we should speak the truth in love. So, so here's how it works. We should always be sure that when we're answering someone, that our heart is in the right place. Our heart's always in the right place. That we generally care for this person, that we, that we generally want what's best for them, that we generally want them to know Christ, that we generally want to help answer their questions in the right way. Do we genuinely have their best at heart? You see, it doesn't matter who a person is. Every person is made in the image of God. Every person. Let, let's not get into this. Right now you hear, you hear talk about Hamas and, and, and those in Gaza using terms like animals. They're animals. Listen, they're not animals. They're human beings created in the image of God. Now, can they be held accountable? Yeah, that's what God created governments for, <laughs> to put down evildoers. But they're not animals. They're human beings who deserve judgment, yes, but, but yet human beings. And we need to treat every single person with love and respect even that person who seems arrogant, even that person who, who pushes against you because they know you're a Christian, even that person who tries to push your buttons, man, treat them with love and respect. So our answer, when, we give, when we're asked to give an answer, we're to give a courageous response. We're also to give a respectful response. And then third, what I see here from verses 19, end of 19 down to verse 27, is a truthful response. I mean, imagine how easy it would have been for Daniel here, you know, to pull his punches. Well, king, the, the dream is good. Everything's fine. That's not what he says. He says, oh, man, <laughs> this dream isn't good at all. It's not good at all. Daniel told him the truth. And I think that we can learn here from Daniel what that includes, right? So here we go. A truthful response, first of all, includes explaining God's revelation. When you read the, when you read the dream, 
Daniel, Daniel simply, okay, here's what God said. Here's your vision. Here's your dream. And here's what it means. Here's the interpretation of your dream. Listen, when we're called to give an answer, we should always explain what God's word says about whatever their question is. Are you following me? Our answers shouldn't be worldly philosophies. Our, our, our answers shouldn't be, well, God doesn't give you any more than you can handle. I mean, these, these Christianese kind of things we say, you know, that aren't actually in the Bible. Our answers should be what God says in explaining what God has said. Take them to the Bible. Open it. Say, well, I don't really know the Bible that well. Well, that's your homework for tonight and tomorrow and for every day from now till Jesus comes. Grow in knowing the word so that you're ready to give the answer. Why? So that we can explain God's revelation. That's, that's simply what he does here. You know, God... God has communicated to man. He's done this through general revelation and special revelation. Do you know the difference? General revelation is, is how God has revealed himself through creation. Romans 1 talks about this as well as Psalm 19, right? The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the works of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech, the Bible says, in every language. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the earth. See, in a general kind of a way, God has revealed himself to mankind through creation and through the natural law that God has stamped on the hearts of every person. So there's general revelation, then there's also special revelation. This is where God speaks in special ways, right? Uh, we see oftentimes in Scripture, as here, a, 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 an appearance, an angel, okay? Uh, how many times we see the angel of the Lord? We see God appearing in some type of a form to communicate to, to Abraham or Jacob or, or, or the various people in the Bible or sending an angel, right, with Gabriel, uh, to, to Elizabeth and, and to Mary, so on and so forth, right? So, so physical appearances of God or an angel, dreams, visions like, like Nebuchadnezzar had here, like we see in, given in Scripture, the written word of God. This is God's special revelation. This is God's communicating to mankind. And that the most important of all, of special revelation is Jesus Christ himself because Jesus came to declare and to, to reveal the Father to us as human beings. Well, the truth is God is still communicating today. He's doing it through his word. I think God is even still communicating today in different ways in different places. Places where there is no Bible. Places where, where the word of God is forbidden. Jesus' his name is forbidden I, I've read often here in the last couple of years about, about Muslims having dreams and visions. I read one this week, and I, I have it here in front of me, and I, I want to share this with you. Make of it what you want, but I think that this is one way that God is still using this sort of communication to communicate with people in places like this. This was a, an entire Muslim family who recently came to Jesus the whole family had 
the exact dream of Jesus Christ in the same night. The man's name of the family, Amur, uh, had been recently searching uh, for truth about Islam and religion. And in desperation, he cries out to God. Here He says, God, if you're alive, reveal yourself to me. You know, when a lost person is searching for God, God will find a way to get a message to that person. He was unprepared for what would happen next. Seven days later, he had a dream about Jesus. And he woke up and he found out his mother and sister had the exact same dream about Jesus. He says, I didn't even know who Jesus was. In Islam, you learned that Jesus was a prophet. We said, God, what do you want to show us? We didn't have a Bible. You can't find Bibles in Iran. This is in Iran. He said, five hours later, a man knocked at our door and put a Bible on our table. He told me, he said that God told him to come and bring them this Bible. This is a true story. Shows up at their door. Here's a Bible. God told me to bring this to you. He said, this man said to the family, said, Jesus is not only a prophet, Jesus is the word of God. He, he began to give them the gospel. He became flesh. He came. He left heaven. He died on the cross for you, me, for those who come to him. Whoever believes in him will be forgiven. He, he explains the gospel to this family. Amir's mother told him that they had all had the dream that seven days earlier at 5 a.m. in the morning. At the same time, they all had the same dream. The man, when he heard this, started to weep for half an hour. And he said, it was at 5 a.m. that I heard the voice of Jesus in my room that said, my son, get up and take the word to Amir's house they're ready to hear my word today. Amir went away saying, Jesus is alive. He's the living God. He came to give us life even in the countries that Jesus Christ is forbidden. Jesus is real. He says, worship him. Make it that of what you want. What I think is happening, I think that God is still in the business of loving people all over the world and revealing himself to people who don't know him, people who are searching for him. Now listen, this doesn't alleviate our responsibility, God's call on us to communicate his truth. Right? Doesn't alleviate our responsibility. We're called to be witnesses. And in doing so, we are to explain God's revelation. Next, as we, as we look at this truthful response, what does Daniel do? He warns of God's judgment. As you read verses 23, 24, and 25, Daniel just tells it like it is. He tells Nebuchadnezzar that God's going to judge him. We can't leave this part out. We can't leave out the part that says there's a hell there's a penalty for sin. 
Some folks just want to emphasize the love of God. Does God love people? I believe God genuinely and salvifically loves every single person, and he makes a genuine offer of salvation to every single person. And that it's every person's responsibility and ability to respond to God's genuine love and offer of salvation. But we cannot, we must not, skip over the part about God's judgment. We gotta help, we gotta explain sin. We gotta explain judgment. We gotta explain that there's a, a penalty for sin. And this is what Daniel does in his interpreting of the dream. He, he warns him of God's judgment, but praise God, there's more to the truth than judgment. God offers mercy, and this is the, the third part of our response, and that is to give hope of deliverance. When you look at verses 25 and 26, Daniel says, look, but there's some good news. Look at it. Verse 25, you will be driven away from people who live like wild animals. You will feed on grass like cattle and drenched with dew of the sky for seven periods of time until you acknowledge that the Most High is ruler over the human kingdoms and he gives them to anyone he wants. As for the command to leave the, the tree stump with its roots, your kingdom will be restored as soon as you acknowledge that heaven rules. What's the good news? As soon as you acknowledge the Most High, you'll be delivered. Right? You'll be saved. Your kingdom will be restored. What's the gospel? It's good news. Church, we are bearers of good news in a world of awful news. There's so much bad news out there. We have the good news. We have the best news in all the world. Tell the good news. There is hope of deliverance. Yes, we're to explain the truth. We're to explain the reality of judgment. But we are to give the good news that, that anyone who looks to Christ can be delivered and have a part in the kingdom of God. So what does he do in verse 27 as we, as we continue here? Not only does he give a hope of deliverance, but the fourth point here is that he, he gives a call to repentance. Look at the end of verse number 27. He says, therefore, may, may my advice seem good to you, my king. Separate yourself from your sins by doing what is right and from your injustice injustices by showing mercy to the needy perhaps there will be an extension of your prosperity you see daniel is just simply calling the king to change his mind to acknowledge his sins to turn from them to put his faith in the one true god he's saying king there's good news there's a window of opportunity if you repent of your sins god will spare you isn't this a similar message that Jonah gave to Nineveh, right? Nineveh, wicked city. Joshua, Jonah, excuse me, didn't even want to go preach to Nineveh because in the same way as Daniel is living in a foreign land, Nineveh, that was the Assyrian capital. I mean, they, the Assyrians took over the northern kingdom. I mean, they were, they were as bad as the, the Babylonians, Jonah didn't want to go there and preach. He did. And what was the message? 
repent or God's going to destroy the city. And all the people repented, it says. And the judgment was lifted. There is a way out. And there was a way out for Nebuchadnezzar as well. If he would repent, he would not have faced the judgment. God is giving Nebuchadnezzar a way out. And here's what we see here, church. Listen, what we see here is God's concern is for the persons of every part of the world. Even in pagan Babylon. Even in pagan Iran today. Even in pagan Gaza today, right? God's concern is for people in every part of the world. He wants to give them this spiritual light. He wants to save them from their sins. Nebuchadnezzar and all of his subjects were precious to the Lord. And God granted them this revelation that they might be saved and delivered. Listen, God doesn't want to judge mankind. But he is a just judge and he will but if he wanted to judge man like he couldn't wait to do it, he would just have done it already. The Bible says that that God doesn't take any delight in the death of the wicked. You know how everybody celebrates when, you know, some terrorist, you know, chief is, you know, blown up or whatever and the world cheers. God, God doesn't delight. And when, when the, w- the wicked perish? The scripture says God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I, I believe it for just what it says. I just believe that that's a, a truthful statement in the scripture that God wants every person to be saved. He doesn't want anyone to perish. The last thing God wants to do is to judge you. The last thing he wants to do is to see anyone go to hell. He doesn't want to see anyone's life wasted, anyone's life thrown away. We were created in the image of God, and he cares for you. This is why he sent his son into this world to die in your place on the cross, right? We need to see this about those people who are proud and arrogant, who push back, who who it seems like they're unreachable. We We remember that about them too. That's the truth. But what you do with the truth is up to you. Here's here's number three, the aftermath. And I'll have to move through this quickly. Here's the truth. Well, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. That's James 4, 6. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. You know, the king heard Daniel's message. Had he humbled himself and repented, he would have been spared. But look what happens. Verse 28, all this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Look at the first couple of words of verse 29. It says, at the end of 12 months. Okay. He got the message. He heard the message. And all of a sudden, it's 12 months later. All of a sudden, a year has gone by. What's this tell us? He heard the message but he did nothing with it. Nothing. 
in these closing verses of the, of the passage, we see some of man's most basic responses to God's truth and the results of those responses. So, so let's just look at them. The first one is apathy. He hears the word of, of the Lord. He let it go in one ear and out the other. Isn't this how many people respond today to the truth? Have you ever witnessed to someone? Maybe they were asking questions. Maybe they, you felt like they were searching, but you had a conversation. You gave them the gospel, but it seemed like no change, no, no acceptance. Just went back to living their life of ease. Powerful people often respond to the gospel this way. They're like, oh, I'm good. <laughs> you know, I'm good. Take care of myself. I don't, I don't need it. Ecclesiastes 8 tells us that because God does not punish sinners instantly, they feel it's safe to, to do wrong. Right? Because there's not instant judgment. Because we sin and we, it seems like we get away with it time and time again. We think we're never going to get caught. But know this. It may be 10 years from now. It may be 10 minutes from now. But one thing is certain, God will keep his word. We can take it to the bank. We will reap what we sow. We will. Can I remind you that Nebuchadnezzar was a wicked man deserving of judgment? Just for a second, can I interject this right here? Remember that he was ready to butcher an entire class of men because they couldn't recall to him a dream that he had forgotten. Go back and read chapter 2. He was ready to put to death all those who wouldn't worship his golden image, right, that he erected. Go back and read chapter 3. Then he had King Zedekiah from Judah who was made king of Jerusalem after Babylon invaded it and then rebelled against him. He he actually went to Jerusalem, destroyed the city, took King Zedekiah, slaughtered his sons in front of him, and then gouged his eyes out. So that was the last thing he would ever see. And then paraded him back to Babylon as a trophy. This was a hard, vicious, wicked man deserving of judgment. Yet in spite of that, God says, Nebuchadnezzar, there's a way out for you. Praise God for grace and Mercy, amen? Nebuchadnezzar had 12 months to get it together. He had a full year to repent. Do you know that God waited 120 years for no, during Noah's day? 120 years it took Noah to build the ark, and every day he'd go out there and say, hey, man, I'm building an ark. You're going to want to get on this thing. Judgment's coming. And they laughed and they scoffed until the day the rain began to fall. But the ark, door was already closed. He gave the city of Jerusalem almost 40 years of grace after they crucified their Messiah. Then the Romans came and destroyed the city of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Just think about how long-suffering God is right now. I mean, 2,000 years of, of grace we've been living under. But rather than he repent, he goes on his life. He doesn't care. He doesn't feel any urgency he passes up God's gracious opportunity to to make a new beginning and submit to the will of God but he made the wrong decision and you know what some people go out into eternity just this way just this way such a tragedy 
Well, at the end of 12 months, he was probably walking on the flat of his roof. It tells us here, if you look at verse number 30, he's 29, he's walking on the, the roof of his palace, and he exclaims, Is this not Babylon the great that I have built to be a royal resident my, by my vast power and my majestic glory? So the first response often is apathy. The second response to the gospel is sometimes this continued arrogance. Asaph saw this in his day, Psalm 73, how proud the wicked were just living in open sin. And this is, this is what our culture in Babylon today has become, isn't it? Just open sin, just arrogant about it. Like it's all in our face. It's shoved in our face, right? Like this is who we are. This is what we'll do. And we're supposed to celebrate it now. Well, Proverbs tells us that when arrogance comes, disgrace follows. And so it was for Nebuchadnezzar, God afflicted him. It tells us in verses 31 through 33 that while the words were on Nebuchadnezzar's lips, things began to change. His heart becomes like that of an animal. He's driven from the royal palace to live in the fields with, with wild beasts. Listen, God is long-suffering, but when the time for him to act comes, there's no delay. There's no delay. You know, Nebuchadnezzar is not the first world leader to, for something like this to happen. Leaders come and go, kings come and go, prime ministers come and go, presidents come and go. And when any person, no matter how powerful they are, uses their office to resist the will of God, the plans of God, it catches up to them. When they arrogantly push against God, it catches up to them. There's a payday. You know Napoleon, right? The great leader of France. Did you know that on the morning of the Battle of Waterloo, this little dictator stood gazing at the field of battle and he describes to his commanding officer that day's campaign, Napoleon says, we will put the infantry here, we'll put the cavalry there, the artillery here, and at the end of the day, England will be at the feet of France and Wellington, the leader of the British, will be the prisoner of Napoleon. And after that, his commanding officer said, well, sir, we must not forget that man proposes, but God disposes. And with an arrogant snide, Napoleon said, excuse me, you must say that Napoleon proposes and Napoleon disposes. Yeah. Famous last words. The man who wrote this little piece of history, Victor Hugo, and also the author of Les Mirabelle's, gave this commentary, said, from that moment on, Waterloo was lost. For God sent rain and hail so that the troops of Napoleon could not maneuver as he had planned. And on the night of the battle, it was Napoleon who was the prisoner of Wellington and France was at the feet of England. How quickly things change when little men think that they can oppose the living God and even take his place. A more modern example of this would be Nikolai Ceausescu, uh, right? Is that how you say his name? The, the former leader of Romania back in 1989 when we were in college. You know, this cruel, vicious dictator 
persecuted uh, the, his people and, and especially Christians, persecuted, killed Christians, any potential threat. Finally, he thought he had secured ultimate power and, and uh, for his 72nd birthday, he wanted a symphony, you know, a, to, a song to be written for him, you know, and he wanted it to say, Ceausescu is good, righteous, and holy. He wanted this to be sung on his 72nd birthday, January 26, 1990. But on December 25th, 1989, him and his wife were executed. He caught up with them. He reaped what he sowed. And so it is with the Ceausescu's of the world, the Napoleons of the world, the Nebuchadnezzar's of the world, the Pharaoh's of the world, the Hitler's of the world, the Stalin's of the world. It catches up with them. We can get it all the way down to the individual level, to the person who says, I don't need God. It's all the way down to that level. Look at what I have. Look at what I'm, the family I've built. Look at, look at all of what I've done in life. But God knew what it would take to, to bring Nebuchadnezzar to his senses. And so God brought him low. You see, this apathy and arrogance leads to affliction. And God afflicts a person to bring them to abasement, to humble them. God brought Nebuchadnezzar low for seven periods of time. Some would say seven years, and it very well could have been. Listen, when you see someone going through humbling circumstances, an unreachable, proud person who's resistant to God, when you see them going through a period of humbling circumstances, as a child of God, see the hand of God, of the mercy of God, working in their life, trying to bring them to a place where they will look up to heaven and pray for their salvation as they go through it. Well, he hadn't been, he'd been out in this field for a while, and, he, and Nebuchadnezzar gets to thinking, man, this is pretty lame, actually. <laughs> I don't like this. And so he lifts his eyes to heaven, verse 34. He calls on God, and here we see then an alteration, a change, a transformation. He lifts his, his eyes to heaven and God extends mercy to him and immediately it is evident that something supernatural happened to him. God alters his life. He changes his course and his kingdom. He removes his beastly mind and heart and Nebuchadnezzar in a moment is a re, he's released, he's delivered from his affliction and his sanity is restored and he lives goes on to live a normal life as a human. So, listen, you know people that you've been talking to and they just seem unreachable and man, it just seems like nothing's ever gonna get through to them. Well, God has ways of getting through to them and sometimes it feels like you sow seeds and you talk to people and you know, you, you have the con gospel conversations but it just falls on deaf ears. Well, listen, you never know where those seeds that have been planted where eventually they will bear fruit in a person's life like it did with Nebuchadnezzar. 
Seven, eight years later, if, if that's the case, Nebuchadnezzar remembers what Daniel said, and he looked to heaven, and he repented. What a change in Nebuchadnezzar. See, what happens when God brings a sinner low into a basement, and they are delivered. When they look to heaven, their life is changed. Well, the first thing that they do is we see him lifting up God's name. We see adoration. He praises the God of heaven. I mean, you can read it there. Look at your Bible. I'm not going to take the time to read it, but verse 34, 35, man, he says, I'm, a, I'm praising the God of heaven. This is, what, this is what the living God has done for me. Look, this is a picture of the church of, of Jesus Christ. You look around the room. I mean, we're just a bunch of sinners who, who have been spared, I mean, saved and changed, and, and they, that God has, has, has brought us into his kingdom, right? He's given us a new mind and a new heart, and, and now we come together and we sing praises to his name. Amen? God's worthy of praise. Well, he, had, he praises God. And the final thing we see here is abundance. Because in verses 36 and 37, Nebuchadnezzar points out that he had even more great greatness than he had ever had before. God blessed this man, became one of the greatest kings to ever live. Where sin had abounded, grace abounded even more. What's all this mean? It means that God, in fact, if you look at the closing statement of verse 4, chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar says of God, he is able to humble those who walk in pride. James 4.10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Peter writes, humble yourselves therefore into the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt you at the proper time. God blesses those who humble themselves before him and he humbles those who are prideful what does all this mean it means that no one is unreachable no one is beyond the reach of God if Nebuchadnezzar could be converted that person that you think is unreachable they can be saved whoever that person is out there Oh, they'll never believe. They'll, they'll, they'll never, never, never. No one is beyond the reach of God, so we need to pray for those people. It might be an unsaved boss. It might be a spouse that doesn't know the Lord yet, and you've been waiting so long and praying for for so long. It might be a child that won't even talk to you about the Lord. The grandchild doesn't want anything to do with Jesus, and every time you bring them up, they don't want to hear it. Don't give up. Hope, church, don't give up hope. Don't stop praying for them. Don't stop proclaiming the truth to them. Here's your next steps when we're done. Number one, I will humble myself before God, look to heaven and confess my sin, trusting God to deliver and change me. Right? Just like this is Nebuchadnezzar, this is the Nebuchadnezzar step. Have you done this? Have you confess your sin if you look to heaven repented of your sin and trusted in God to, to deliver you and to change you to save you 
If not, that's the step for you tonight. Step number two, I will courageously and respectfully proclaim the truth while continuing to grow in my knowledge of the truth so that I am ready to give an answer. Church, do you believe that Jesus may come soon? Listen, if that's the case, now isn't the time to be silent. Now is the time to preach the gospel. So here's what I want you to do. Ask God to give you courage that, that you would boldly proclaim the truth to the people in your life who are without Christ. Ask him to give you opportunities. Ask him to open doors. Ask, ask him to work in a person's life. Ask him to give you wisdom so that when, they come to, when, when the person comes to you this week, when they come to you and they have a question, that you don't blow it off or you don't try to use some worldly wisdom or steer the conversation out of fear away from the Lord, but that God would give you the wisdom and courage to direct them to the God of heaven. Let's bow our heads together.